Welcome to episode 69 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. Got a handful of things to talk about this week. So we've got Derek Brunson winning in the main event against Edmund Trevazian at UFC Apex 5. So I'll talk about that fight. Recap the entire card, which ended up being fairly limited with all the fights that ended up coming out or coming off of it in the last few days beforehand and even the day of. Uh, then I'll be previewing the next card, which will be UFC Apex 6, which is coming up next week, headlined by Derek Lewis and Alexia Linick. Recap, or not recap, preview the Bellator event coming up this coming week as well. Um, from there, there's a little bit of follow-up from last week on the Herb Dean versus Dan Hardy situation. Dana White made his own comments on it, and after I recorded on Sunday, I saw a video of Herb Dean talking about his side of the story, so I'll sort of follow up on what I talked about last week there. Uh, then I'll talk about a handful of fights that were announced. All of them are actually pretty big as well. Some giant fights, including Khabib versus Justin Gaethje. Um, from there, a little or an interesting move in the management world that the guy who was heading MMA at Balanju Sports got scooped up by Vayner Sports, uh, which is run by Gary Vaynerchuk's brother. Although Gary is also involved in that, uh, so we'll talk about what that means in the short term and then also what that could potentially mean in the long term. A couple updates on some major grapplers slash wrestlers who are looking to move into MMA. So we have Bouchesh signing with 1FC and then also Pat Downey signing with an MMA management team. So I'll talk about that. And then the last thing to cover will be who's number one, which was not the event that we expected, at least this time last week. Um, but it was a big grappling event that was put on by Flow Grappling. Both Gordon Ryan and Craig Jones tested positive for COVID weren't taken out of it, but they still had a pretty good event regardless. So I'll recap what was left of that. But back to the top, we have Derek Brunson versus Edmund Shabazian. And this fight was really interesting to me because... From what I've seen of Shabazian, which hasn't been a whole lot, he's had a, a handful of pretty quick fights in the UFC. It was sort of tough to tell what what the expectation would be for him in terms of where he's at right now in his game, and then also whether or not he's the type of guy who could be fighting for a title within like six months, or not six months, but within like a year, or whether he's the guy who's getting pushed a little bit quickly. And what I noticed from him in his early fights was that he has a lot of power, especially with his right hand, uh, and he's... It's not as though he's just like a really strong striker who happens to just outmuscle guys. He's he's pretty clever about finding openings on guys and really accurate when he does try to take his shots, whether that's starting off with a kick or whether he's trying to set up a punch, trying to lead someone into a right hand. And within this fight, a lot of what I had noticed in the past fights was there as well. He did land some pretty hard shots on Brunson. Brunson was able to take him. Um, but also for Brunson, he did a decent job of staying at distance. Um, not rushing in the same way he usually does unless he had Shabazian hurt. And so it was sort of making it a little bit more difficult for Shabazian to find his openings right away, and that's why the fight started off relatively slow, and Brunson was fairly cautious. Um, but Shabazian was starting to make some reads on Brunson. Brunson did a decent job of getting his hand up in time on a couple of those right hands. Um, but for the most part, you could kind of tell Shabazian looked, looked pretty decent out there. Uh, then late in the round, Brunson starts to attempt to take Shabazian to the ground. And that was a, a real big question here. And from what we had heard of, about Shabazian, the statement was is that he started when he was like 10 years old, uh, wrestled in high school, was doing jiu-jitsu tournaments throughout the time. So while striking is what most people knew him for, he was also developing his grappling throughout that time as well. And so, at least from wrestling, his pedigree at least was like a state qualifier in California in high school, which is not like that really compares to like a D1 wrestler or a D1 All-American, but it, at least it shows some competency there. Uh, for the grappling, just saying that he competes in grappling tournaments really doesn't tell you a whole lot. doesn't tell you what belt level he's at. doesn't tell you how well he does there. doesn't tell you um, what types of tournaments he's competing in. There are some smaller tournaments where you're going to have relatively small draws, and sometimes just showing up will be enough to get you a medal, and there's some tournaments where you have big draws, and a lot of the best guys come out to it, and doing well in those means a lot more. 
So his grappling really was a big question here. And it's not that Derek Brunson's a bad grappler. Derek Brunson is one of the better wrestlers in the middleweight division, which, by the way, it's kind of surprising to see how, for whatever reason, welterweight historically has always had a lot of really good wrestlers that get to the top 15, and for whatever reason, middleweight hasn't been, that hasn't been the case there. I know in college wrestling, there is a weight class at 165 and a weight class at 174, so I guess the idea is that you can have a 165-pounder who might be too big to go down to 155, so he fights MMA at 170, and then you can have the 174-pounder who just drops a few more pounds and gets down to uh, 170, whereas near 185, you have a weight class at 184 and you have a weight class at 197, and the 184-pounder makes sense to go to 185. Um, The 197-pounder, maybe not. Um, So for whatever reason, middleweight just hasn't historically had a lot of great wrestlers in it. Um, Even during Anderson Silva's era, you had Chael Sonnen, you had Dan Henderson, I guess, and then beyond that, can't really think of too many other great wrestlers in the division. Then Chris Wyman sort of came up and made his run to the top and was a champion for a bit. Um, but even now, I, I guess you could count you Romero. He's a freestyle wrestler rather than a folk-style wrestler, so there are differences there. He, he's great on the feet and great, great at getting takedowns, but his control from top isn't quite the same as someone who's been doing folk-style and who's had to be able to control someone and have that be a, a big part of the game. Uh, and then from there, I mean, I guess Chris Weidman's outside the top 15 now, but he is in the division. Then you have Derek Brunson, who was a decent college wrestler as well. So really, if you're going to test a guy like Shabazzian and see how he can handle a wrestler, Derek Brunson is, I, I mean, he's the guy who you got to put him up against to test him. Uh, and unfortunately for Shabazzian, wasn't able to really pass the test. Uh, definitely not in the same way that Israel Adesanya was able to pass that test, at least. Uh, but Shabazzian was taken down a few times. It's pretty surprising that off the first takedown, it looked as though Brunson was in position to take Shabazzian's back and possibly start looking for a choke. Uh, for whatever reason, I saw this a couple times in the fight, whenever Brunson would take someone down and then get behind him, he would throw one hook in, usually the far side hook, but rather than try to sink the other one in, he would just kind of like try to weigh heavy and land some punches instead. But it did seem like if he wanted to take a more jujitsu style approach, that he could have tried to sink in the other hook and then just start attacking for a choke, and there's a decent chance that he might have been able to put Shabazzian in some serious trouble in the first round, but wasn't able to do that. Shabazzian eventually got back up, but used up a lot of energy to do so and looked as though he was getting tired, especially as the fight moved into the second round. Um, as he was getting tired, Brunson was still threatening with takedowns in the second round. Um, was starting to find some more success lunging with that left hand. It's kind of crazy how much space he can he can make up on that left hand. The downside for Brunson is that he keeps his chin up the entire time and his hands are down when he lunges on that left hand. Uh, but the upside is, is that, typically speaking, you don't expect someone to be able to cover the kind of distance on a punch that Brunson seems to be able to cover on that left hand so it can catch you off guard. Uh, so Brunson was finding a home for it. Shabazzian had a couple shots here and there that were landing pretty hard on Brunson that were keeping him at bay. But again, Brunson was able to get the fight to the ground, uh, especially late in the second round, was really doing a lot of damage from top. Looked as though he actually knocked Shabazzian out at the end of that second round, too. Uh, but it was right at the horn. Herb Dean decided uh, just to let Shabazzian go back to the corner, had the doctor check him and see if it was okay. Uh, it, it was a tough one. Uh, you figure if there were five more seconds, the fight probably could stop right there. But I guess Herb Dean was like, eh, there were a couple unanswered shots. The bell goes off. Maybe not quite ready to, to stop it. But either way, it seemed as though during that time, Herb Dean was sort of second-guessing himself. Like, man, maybe I probably should have should have stopped that one. Uh, but Dr. Checks on him. Even gives him a little bit extra time beyond the minute. Uh, they go back out there. Brunton's able to get on top again. Uh, lands a few shots. You can tell that Shabazzian really wasn't there. And... Sort of at a weird time, what what would sort of appear as like an early stoppage, at least in the timing of it, um, Herb Dean stepped in. I'm not saying that it was an early stoppage. I'm just saying that like without it, without the context of what happened at the end of the second round, it would appear that way. Um, but it was a decently well-timed stoppage. It doesn't seem like Shabazzian's any worse for wear from it. Uh, 
Uh, but for Brunson, he gets a really big win. So as far as where they go from here, for Brunson, a lot of talk heading into this fight was like, I'm not just a gatekeeper. I've actually been making some improvements. I'm going to come out and show those improvements right now and get a big win over a surging prospect. Uh, so if that's the story that he told, and then he comes out and gets this win, I guess people kind of have to believe that story. Uh, so for him, it's going to be interesting to see how the middleweight division works out. And something I'm going to get to later is that, surprisingly to me, I kind of figured that Robert Whitaker would at least wait for the title fight. He's not. He's signed on to fight Jerry Cannonier, so those two are now taken up. Jack Hermanson is available. Darren Till, not really available because he blew out his knee. I think he's going to be out for a while. So I, I guess Jack Hermanson's looking for someone to fight. You could possibly make Hermanson versus Brunson. I don't know if that's exactly the type of fight that Jack Hermanson was looking to take, but at the same point, Till doesn't look like he's going to be on the table, even though those two are sort of talking to each other right now, unless Hermanson wants to wait for Till to heal up. Uh, so at that point, maybe that's a fight that gets made, and Derek Brunson has a chance to to take that fight. And if he beats Hermanson, he's not going to be too far off of a title shot, which is kind of crazy, especially given where he was at heading into this fight. I think a lot of people just expected him to be that guy who hangs around like the the 9-12 to 12 range and just sort of tests out the new prospects and sees if they're worth keeping around or, or, or if they're worth pushing forward or not. Uh, so for him, this is definitely a big win. For Shabazian, uh, we saw a lot more about his game. Now, granted, he's 22. He's got plenty of time to improve. He's he's pretty far along for a 22-year-old. It's not as though the power is ever really going to go anywhere. Um, he's pretty clever about creating openings to, to land his shots. I don't think that's going to get any worse over time. The grappling should improve over time. Is he at the right camp right now with Edmund, Shabaz- or with, um, Edmund Tarverdian? I mean, Edmund's mostly a striking coach, and striking has been the best aspect of Shabazian's game. Uh, so for, for whatever it's worth, I don't know that Edmund Tarverdian is not a guy that he should be working with. Uh, maybe he takes an approach similar to Ronda Rousey, where Ronda was also working with the the uh, Gracie Academy as well for her jiu-jitsu. Maybe Shabazian might want to start looking elsewhere for his grappling. But with that being said, he, he's got plenty of time to work with right now. He's He's a pretty good fighter as it is. Most fighters that he's going to fight in the middleweight division moving forward aren't going to be at the same level wrestling as Derek Brunson is. So getting beat in this exact way that Brunson beat him doesn't seem like it's going to happen that much. And I think over time, as his grappling improves, um, the ability for fighters to do what Brunson just to do him is going to kind of go down as well. So I think he's in a decent spot there. Um, most guys who he's going to fight on the feet, even if they are better technical strikers than him, he still is, has a lot of power. He's still very good at setting up a shot, so he's going to be a danger to pretty much anyone on the feet. So while this isn't how you'd like to see him him lose right here, I know a lot of people are trying to play Monday morning, or play Monday, morning, Monday morning quarterback and say, oh, it was too quick to go from Tavares to Brunson, which is kind of funny given that that's exactly what Adesanya did. So to, to give Shabazzi in the same exact path, I don't know that that was a wrong move by the UFC. But I think moving forward for Shabazzi and just... Don't rush it too much. Don't try to fight every three months and not give yourself the time to consistently improve in the gym. But I wouldn't be too concerned about him being a bust or anything like that. It's just that we didn't know a whole lot about his grappling. We know a little bit more about it now. It's not quite at the level that his coaches said that it was. But again, some of the coaches that were saying that his grappling was at a certain level also would tell you that Ronda Rousey's boxing was at a certain level. So it sort of is what it is. But now we kind of have a more realistic idea of where Edmund Shabazzian's grappling's at. It's not terrible, but it's not... At, at the level that it needs to be to deal with some of the better grapplers in the division. Uh, so he's got a bright future ahead of him. He just has to make sure that he he handles this right and approaches this the right way. I saw a lot of vitriol online for him as well just because of all the talk of Ronda Rousey being his his manager and him being, like, Ronda's golden child. Like, I, I can understand why people don't like Ronda Rousey. That, perfectly, that, that makes perfect sense, but I don't have any reason to believe that Shabazzian is the same type of person that Ronda Rousey is for whatever 
for whatever it's worth, it seems as though publicly they're the exact opposite. Rondo, big talker, and always seemed to have like an attitude about her and an edge about her. Uh, Shabazian, sort of to his own detriment, especially as a professional entertainer, really doesn't get in front of the mic all that much, isn't really that vocal. Um, nowhere near the same way that Rousey was. So while I understand that people like to see Ronda Rousey lose or suffer in any way possible, and they're they're happy that Shabazzian lost because in, by extension it's like a loss for Rousey, I, I don't think it's really fair to to put that on Edmund or to, to look at Edmund Shabazzian in the same way that you would look at Ronda Rousey because it doesn't seem as though he did anything wrong uh, relative to what they did that warranted the, the hate that they've gotten. So moving on to the coming event, we had a woman's um, flyweight fight between Jennifer Maya and Joanne Calderwood. Calderwood was pretty much in line for a title fight against Valentina Shevchenko. Um, Shevchenko had been injured for a bit, so Calderwood's like, look, I, I might as well just make some money right now, take a fight in the meantime, um, get paid, and then get that title fight later on this year. Um, probably didn't expect Jennifer Maya to beat her. I don't think a lot of people did expect Jennifer Maya, Maya to win this fight. Um, for the most part, it started off on the feet. Um, relatively competitive. Calderwood was looking decent, was landing some nice shots. And Jennifer Maya throws a front kick to the face about two and a half minutes into the first round. And it looks as though the kick kind of landed, but it wasn't like it rocked Calderwood or anything. Um, but but Maya's leg sort of hung up there for a bit, so Calderwood was able to catch it uh, and then took her down right off of that. And then from there, for the next like minute and a half, it, it seemed as though for like the first 30 seconds or so, Maya was just trying to get back to her feet. She wasn't actually trying to grapple, but Calderwood was keeping her down and trying to stay on top. Um, just trying to keep a low posture or defensive posture and just land a couple shots here and there just to stay active and chew up the clock and win the round. But it was pretty clear once Jennifer Maya decided that she wasn't going to be able to get back to her feet or decided that that wasn't going to be her main focus, that Maya was doing a pretty good job of controlling posture on, on Joanne Calderwood, of cutting angles on Joanne Calderwood and attacking. She was starting to look for it on the plot early, uh, never quite threw it up. It was getting into the setup for it. Uh, you could see her wrapping over top of Calderwood's arms, trying to look to swing her hips around for an armbar. Uh, hadn't quite done that yet, but again, you could tell that that's what she was looking for. Uh, and then with about a minute left in the round, finally uh, is able to sort of drag the arm across, throw her leg over, and go for an armbar. Uh, from there within that armbar, and I have a, a full breakdown video of this that I already posted, or that I just posted today. Calderwood made a, a handful of mistakes in, in terms of how she defended this, um, but to Jennifer Maya's credit, um, she focused on the correct details and that the big detail that she focused on was making sure that she had control of Calderwood's elbow. Uh, so after Calderwood sort of fell off to the side, Maya was able to scoop that elbow back up and then was able to extend the arm out and get the tap. So a really big win for Jennifer Maya. I don't think anyone really thought of her as a title contender. Um, but given the fact that everyone expected Calderwood to be the title contender and for Maya to win and win in the first round by a finish, it put her in a position where Valentina Shochenko said, okay, you know what? Jennifer Maya is going to be the ne my next opponent. Uh, and in the post-fight press conference, Dana White agreed, so it looks as though Jennifer Maya is going to have the next title fight at 125. Uh, fight before that, we have Vicente Luque versus Randy Brown. Um, pretty fun fight for the most part. Had a really weird finish to it in that Luque had Brown up against the fence, and it looked like Brown was trying to play the game where if you get one hand down, you can't be in the head. And while he was trying to do that rather than actually defending himself, uh, Luque was able to sort of pull, him, pull up on his head just enough where Brown couldn't touch the mat. And... In that time, landed a really big knee, dropped Randy Brown, landed a few more punches, and was able to get the finish at the end of the round. Uh, so it was otherwise a pretty competitive fight. Uh, it has a really odd finish there at the end there, uh, but Luke is able to get the win by a knockout against Randy Brown. Uh, and then the first fight, that, or what ended up being the first fight on the main card, was between Lando Venata and Bobby Green. Uh, really fun fight. Bobby Green en ends up winning all three rounds. Um, Venata had some moments here and there, but for the most part, Venata... 
uh, who's definitely not been known for having the best defensive fundamentals and defensive awareness. I uh, took a lot of hard shots, got dropped a couple times, and Bobby Green was able to win this fight. Um, there was supposed to be another fight between Kevin Holland and Trevin Giles on the main card. Apparently, Trevin Giles passed out in the back before the fight happened, and so that fight had to get pulled. Kevin Holland wanted to fight at Herman, who also had his opponent come out, which I, I guess I'll, I'll get to next after that. Um, but I guess that Herman was already gone, and once Gerald Mershart was gone, he figured, you know what, what's the reason of me sticking around here? So he was no longer around and willing to take the fight. Uh, so as for that specific fight, what happened between Gerald Mershart and, um, and Ed Herman, what I find really odd about this is that the UFC kind of has this little bubble thing going on where once you come in, um, they have like their own hotel set aside. They'll test you, make sure that you're clean, you don't have COVID. Then they'll let you in, and then from there, you, you kind of have to stay within the bubble. I know that sometimes you can leave the bubble. Um, like, I've heard stories of fighters who, like, if they're cutting weight, they can, like, go outside and, like, run in, run in some sweats and, like, jog around. Um, so it's it's possible that Gerald Mearshot was clean when he came in. Um, then he went outside for some reason or another. Maybe he was cutting weight and just running around, or maybe it was something else, and maybe he caught it. But to me, it seems odd that a fighter would come into the bubble, be clean, uh, all the way through to the point where they weigh in and make weight. And then, like, the day of the fight, test positive for COVID, and then that's it. And I know in some other sports, uh, in NASCAR, I think Jimmy Johnson was an example of this. Uh, I believe in baseball there were a couple players as well that, where this happened where they would have a positive test, uh, but then they would test again, like, within a day or two right after, and then both of those tests would be negative. And it seems as though every so often there are false positive tests, and I kind of have to wonder, with Gerald Mearshart, was this a false positive test? And... For the UFC, if you have him in the bubble, if you have these other positive, or if you have if you have these other negative tests for Gerald Mearshart, and all of a sudden he tests positive the day of the fight, like would you, like by rule, like would the commission say, okay, that's it, there's a positive test, whether or not it's a false positive, we have to, we have to stop it right now, and we have to cut the fight off, or do they say, you know what, this seems odd, let's just take another test just in case, uh, sort of like a B sample, so to speak, just to see if he really is positive before he goes, because it seems to me that there's a decent chance that Gerald Mearshart might have had a false positive here, given the fact that he tested negative the other couple of times, and that he was in sort of like a bubble environment. Um, so I, I think that's something that the UFC is going to have to look into and see exactly what happened there. But if that is the case, if Gerald Mearshart was a false positive, and he ends up not being able to make his full money for this fight, if Ed Herman doesn't make his full money for this fight, uh, they get their fight pushed back, uh, the card loses the fight, Like it, it just seems like the consequences here of a false positive could be pretty big, and I don't know exactly what sort of plan the UFC has in, in place in case a false positive does come up, but I am curious to see if they do any kind of follow-up on the story and if we, we learn a little bit more about it later on. And for what it's worth, Gerald Marichard also said that he tested positive, but he did not have any symptoms, or he felt just fine. So I hope they do a little bit more research on that and see exactly what's going on with that positive test that Marichard had, whether or not in a couple of days he's going to have some really bad symptoms and it turns out that the test caught it, um, or whether he was fine the entire time, not even an asymptomatic case, and it was just a, a, a faulty test that that rendered uh, a positive result. Um, so either way, moving on through the prelims, uh, we had Frankie Sines versus Jonathan Martinez. Uh, Frankie Sines looks like he's kind of at the end of his run here in the UFC. He's at 39 years old. Um, decent wrestler with a, a good overhand right, but the wrestling just hasn't been quite there for him. Uh, if he does take his opponents down, it doesn't seem as though he's been all that dominant on top. Uh, and on the feet, just sort of like having the right hand as the main weapon isn't going to be enough. And Martinez had a much more diverse attack and was able to just light him up for most of this fight. It was kind of surprising that Science made it through the end of the second round, but early on in the third, uh, got taken out, and this time the ref stepped in and stopped it. Uh, then we had Johnny Munoz versus Nate Manis. 
Munoz looked pretty good in the first round. Um, but from there, Manis was able to sort of take over, was able to keep Munoz uh, from taking him down, or at least from controlling him once he got to the mat. Um, and from there, Manis was able to land the better shots and able to get the win. Uh, fight before that was Jamal Emers versus Vince Cachero. Uh, Emers was just able to outstrike Cachero for most of this fight, and he got the win. And then Chris Gutierrez versus Cody Durden. Sort of weird how this ended up going to a draw. So Durden got an early takedown in the first round against Gutierrez. Uh, had his back for much of the time. Wasn't able to really get super close on a submission or, or anything. But he, he was in control for most of the round. So I think a lot of people agree that that was a 10-8 round. Uh, from there, Gutierrez won the next two rounds uh, pretty clearly. I, I don't know that any of those rounds were won to a degree where you would say that it would be 10-8. But they were definitely um, very clear rounds for Chris Gutierrez. So as a result, you have the 10-8 the round versus the two um, pretty dominant rounds in the second and the third. So it sort of feels weird seeing Gutierrez take the L, or not, not get a W here, given how dominant he was for the second and the third round, and given how he was in a bad position for sure, having his back taken, but it's not as though it looked like he was close to getting finished in that first round. Uh, but either way, that's how that fight ended up going. I believe there's another fight that got pulled off of this one as well. I'm trying to think of what it was. Um, it was Giles Holland. It was, oh, Eric Spicely and... I'm trying to think who Eric Spicely was supposed to fight. But um, I guess the bigger story there with Eric Spicely is that he was saying that after his fight with Deron Wynn that he had taken some head trauma and he was like on some antidepressants or on some, um, some kind of drug to try to help him with that. And that had messed with his ability to cut weight, and that was why he had to get out of that fight. Um, that's a story that I think we is going to need some more follow-up on if, if this is like a long-term thing for Eric Spicely where he's going to have to be on those, on those drugs for the rest of his life. Uh, is MMA necessarily something that he should keep keep doing at this point i don't know it's not as though eric spicely's a guy anyone sees being a, a future challenge or a future champion had that one really big win against tiago santos um where he's able to get him down and submit him uh, but outside of that has always been one of those guys who has been on the bottom half of his division in the ufc um pretty good grappler i'm sure he can make some money if he wants to stay in martial arts either as a coach or um doing some grappling matches here and there as well so if his life is being altered in such a manner that he has to now constantly take drugs um to like manage his mental health i don't know that constantly fighting is gonna be the best long-term thing for him but that's gonna be something for him to decide and something for his doctor to decide but either way uh, it sounds as though that put him in a bad position um trying to make weight and ultimately forced him out of this fight as well uh so moving forward we have ufc apex six coming up next week uh so that's gonna be heavy or headlined by a heavyweight title or not title fight a heavyweight main event uh between Derek lewis and alexia linick uh really interesting style matchup here uh, you'd figured that Olenek would be able to get this fight to the ground, and Derek Lewis is not really known as being the most technical guy on the ground. He's just kind of one of those guys who powers his way back up. Uh, it's worked against some decent grapplers like Roy Nelson in the past. Uh, is it going to work against Olenek, or or is Olenek going to be able to catch him if Lewis just tries to muscle his way back up? I think that's going to be something interesting to watch if he's able to get to the ground. Lewis is definitely a much harder hitter and a better striker than Alexi Olenek is. Uh, so for him, he's obviously going to want to keep this fight on the feet for the most part. Hopefully for him, he'll still be in shape. I know in his recent fights, he's been down in weight compared to what he had been earlier in his career. Uh, so hopefully the quarantine didn't get Derek Lewis out of shape. But this is going to be an interesting style matchup where it's like whenever this fight's on the feet, uh, you're just waiting to see what Derek Lewis is going to do to land on Olenek and to, to win the fight. And then whenever this fight goes to the mat, it's going to be like this question of, is Derek Lewis going to get away with sort of his technical deficiency sometimes just because he's so strong and explosive and really good at timing it, timing his explosions, or is Alexi Olenek just going to slowly um, tighten up position on Lewis where Lewis isn't able to explode out of anything and eventually find a submission. So it'll be a fun main event. Um, and 
th this card, it, it's actually a decent card. Uh, even though having Alexia Linica in the main event doesn't necessarily seem like it's going to be um, the best card that you're going to get. S some decent card fights on the undercard, uh, specifically the co-main event. Uh, really interesting one between Chris Wyman and Amari Akhmedov. So Chris Wyman has struggled a lot re recently. And from what I've seen in the cage, the big reason for his struggles has been his lack of his lack of confidence on the feet, really. He's always had great wrestling, but when you look at him back when he was a champion, it wasn't just the wrestling for him that was making, making him successful. He had the couple wins over Anderson Silva, where it was primarily on the feet that he was able to win those fights. Uh, he beat Vitor Belfort, uh, was able to take him down pr pretty quickly, uh, did okay on the feet up until he got the takedown, but again, was able to offer an, enough danger on the feet to, to make that a possibility for him. Uh, fought against Machida. Machida was mostly on the feet. Uh, Chris Wyman did pretty well. Um, but after losing the title to Luke Rockhold, it seems as though a lot of the fights that he's had recently, he just tries to rush forward and try to force a takedown without really setting it up with his hands. And not only has that made him less successful in getting his takedowns, um, but in rushing forward and not exactly being the most defensively sound, he's also been open to taking some heavy shots as well. And so for Chris Wyman, it's one of those things where if he can be confident in his hands, if he can be confident throwing combinations, for one, it's going to make him more effective in the striking, obviously, but for two, it's also going to create more openings for him to actually be able to take guys down and control them because his grappling is very good. It's it's among the best in the division. He's one of the best wrestlers in the division, for sure. But on top of that, like a very, he's an excellent black belt, very good top pressure, very good passing, uh, really good control. So it's one of those things where if, if he can make this a grappling match with pretty much anyone in the division, he's going to be in a really good spot. It's just going to be a question of whether or not his striking gets him into the positions where he can do that. Lately, that hasn't been the case. So at this point, you kind of have to ask with Omar Akhmadov, is are we going to see a Chris Weidman who goes back to what was successful for him, or are we going to see a Chris Weidman who keeps doing what he's done in the, his most recent fights, which just hasn't worked very well for him, where he just kind of rushes forward, tries to force a takedown, um, isn't particularly slick in his setups, and just gets picked apart. So to me, who wins this fight is not necessarily... Obviously, Omar Akhmadov, if he's going to win this fight... It's going to be in his hands in terms of how he how he handles this, how he's able to handle this on the feet. Um, if it gets into grappling exchanges, how he's able to handle himself there. Obviously, he, he plays a role in this. But to me, I feel like if if Chris Weidman treats this fight like he treated his early fights in in the UFC and strike strikes first and then works his grappling off of his striking, I think Chris Weidman should win this fight. I think he should win it pretty easily. But I've thought that about a lot of Chris Weidman's recent fights, and he hasn't taken that approach. And as a result, he really hasn't had great results so it's gonna be one of those things where i want absolutely nothing to do with betting on this fight i think it's actually um an even line on it um just because it's gonna come down entirely to how chris weidman decides to approach this fight and i just don't know what we're gonna get out of him here um fight before that we're gonna have darren stewart versus maki patolo um so that should be a pretty fun fight at middleweight darren stewart's always a tough guy to deal with patolo i think just got a win over charles bird uh, we've got Yana Kunitskaya versus Julia Stolyarenko. Don't know anything about Julia, so it's sort of tough to preview this fight. But Neil Dariush versus Scott Holtzman should be a fun one. Holtzman, uh, really stocky, lightweight, um, decent power in his hands, likes to get guys, take guys down and control from top. I don't know if that's going to be the same thing he's going to try to do with Dariush, given Dariush's uh, skill on the ground. So that should be a pretty fun match, pr pretty fun style matchup. On the prelims, we have Tim Means versus Loriano Staropoli. Never a bad fight with Tim Means. Uh, Nazrat Hakparas will be returning against Alex Munoz. Andrew Sanchez versus Wellington Terman. Gavin Tucker versus Justin Janes. Yusuf Valal versus Peter Barrett. And Erwin Rivera versus Ali uh, Kaisi. Um, not sure exactly how to pronounce that name. Uh, but that's the card that we have coming up for the UFC. 
Veltor's also got a card coming up that's going to be headlined by a rematch between Michael Chandler and Ben Henderson. I believe Michael Chandler is getting pretty close to the end of his contract with Bellator, and he had talked about how he's looking to move on uh, once he's done with it. Uh, so for him, if he gets a win over Ben Henderson, that'll do him pretty well. I don't know if this is his last fight in his deal or not, uh, but if he is looking to move to the UFC at some point, getting another win over Ben Henderson is definitely not going to be a bad thing for him. Uh, for Henderson, first fight didn't exactly go all that well for him. Uh, got suplexed, uh, got taken down a bunch, took some pretty heavy shots, but he was able to hang tough for most of the fight and made it pretty competitive and made it pretty fun to watch. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how this rematch ends up shaping out. Uh, then we've got Matt Metrion versus Timothy Johnson. Uh, I think a lot of people would expect Metrion to be able to get the win here, but Johnson's always dangerous. Uh, Curtis Millinder versus Saba Hamasi. This seems like a fight that could have been made in the UFC like a couple of years ago, uh, but it's going to be on a main card for Bellator this year, or this coming week. Uh, we've got Miles Jury versus Georgie Karkanyan, and then also the return of Adam Borch against Mike Hamill. Uh, so moving on, um, I'll talk again about the Dan Hardy versus Herb Dean situation. So where I left off last week was I was just taking my approach to what I had seen on fight night, which was Dan Hardy and Herb Dean getting into it, talking about how it wasn't appropriate for Dan Hardy as an announcer to try to step in and pretend that he's like a member of the commission talking to Herb Dean. Herb Dean, for the most part, in his little video talking about what had happened, sort of agreed with that, where he, he had an issue with that. He's saying, look, there are a handful of people who are in this building. There are some people, cornermen included, um, regulars included, where if they say stop the fight, it actually means something. Whereas if it's just an announcer who's like sharing their opinion, it's not as meaningful. So it's not a, it, it's an issue when an announcer tries to do that. I would agree with him on that point. He was also trying to argue that he, the stoppage that he made in the Jai Herbert fight was not a bad stoppage. I I don't completely agree with that, but again, I, I don't think that it was like an awful stoppage to the point where Jai Herbert is like taking some serious damage that he shouldn't have otherwise had to take. It was just one where the hands were up in a defensive posture. The legs weren't exactly quite that quite as defensive as Nasley was trying to square up with him. Um, and I think the legs kind of gave away that he was he was out more so than the hands did. But either way, I, I think the bigger issue at hand was the fact that Dan Her- Dan Hardy felt the need to to confront the referee here and tell him that he was doing a bad job. And I was talking about how Herb Dean knows when a fight needs to be stopped or not. Whether or not he executes properly on his knowledge every single time is a different story, but he knows when a fight needs to be stopped. So for Dan Hardy to be reiterating something that Herb Dean already knows. It's one of those things where Dan Hardy's not helping out at all. He's not making things any better. All he's doing is making himself feel good because he's he's yelling at the referee there. Uh, so that was my take on it then. Um, at, at this point, Dan Hardy, it seems as though he's still sort of in that same mental space where he feels like he's got like this righteous indignation where he's like, I, I did the right thing. I had nothing to apologize for. Um, for Herb Dean, it seems as though he feels comfortable in, in the stoppage that he made. Um, but on top of that, he's like, look, even if this wasn't a great stoppage, this isn't for Dan Hardy to talk about. This is for the regulators to, to handle. This is for my actual boss to handle, not for Dan Hardy to handle. And I think he's right on that. Uh, but then with Dana White, he was in a bit of he was in a little press scrum, and they asked him about it. And he pretty much said he hadn't talked to Dan Hardy directly, but in the press scrum, he was effectively talking to Dan Hardy when he was saying, look, if, you, if anyone who is an employee of the UFC gets in a referee's face like this, you will be fired on the spot. And the the obvious reason for him saying this is that, especially in America, uh, I know that this particular fight was on Fight Island, but like in America, when you have like an American um, regulatory body over top of it, Herb Dean is not a UFC employee when Herb Dean is roughing a fight in Vegas. Herb Dean is an employee of the state. So for a UFC employee to basically be trying to challenge or intimidate an employee of the state, um, that that's a big issue, and that can have effects on the company as a whole. It's not just an issue between Herb Dean and Dan Hardy at that point. It can also become an issue of the commission and 
the UFC. So completely understand why that approach would be, would be taken where where um, Dana White's saying, hey, look, if you ever challenge a referee like that again, we have to make sure that we send a strong message. Uh, so I think for sure that's why Dana White was coming out as hard as he was. Uh, I don't think Dana was, Dana was really in a position to argue whether or not he felt as though Dan Hardy was right in his argument or whether Herb Dean was right in his argument. But the general theme of UFC employees should not be challenging a regulatory employee was something that I talked about last week, and that was something that was reiterated this week, and I think it's still correct. Next topic is going to be a handful of fights that have been announced. Uh, so the biggest one is going to be Khabib versus Gaethje. That one is going to be October 24th. It sounds as though Khabib's talking about how he just wants to get to 30-0, and which is two more wins from here, and then he'll be happy retiring. His dad's not around anymore, so I guess for him, it, it seems as though he's perfectly content. Uh, he'll probably make a, a ton of money in those next two fights, and that'd be enough for him to live off of. So for him, he doesn't feel the need to keep fighting until he loses or until he can no longer fight it anymore. Uh, so for him, if that's how he feels, then you kind of have to respect it. Justin Gaethje earned that title fight by beating Tony Ferguson. Uh, I, I guess the downside of this is that if that that would mean that ju- that could be just has one fight left after the Gaethje fight, assuming that he beats Gaethje. If he does beat Gaethje, then at that point, the fight that's being talked about right now and a fight that I think would actually... Uh, it, it's hard to say, because that, that Tony Ferguson versus Khabib Nurmagomedov fight is a fight that we've all wanted forever. And if fight number 30 isn't against Tony Ferguson, that would be pretty disappointing. Uh, Ferguson does have time, uh, given that this fight's going to be in October. Ferguson has time to take another fight in the meantime. Whether it's against Dustin Poirier or someone else, get a win and put himself back in that title picture. Khabib is talking about his next fight being against George St. Pierre after he beats Justin Gaethje. I think from a legacy standpoint, that makes sense. George St. Pierre in any kind of fight right now doesn't make a ton of sense just because you know going in the best case scenario is George St. Pierre loses, which why would he want to do that? But best case scenario is he loses and then he gives his rub off to the person who beats him who's still active on the UFC roster. Worst case scenario is that George St. Pierre beats him, beats that person, then retires, and therefore it, it just takes the luster off the division. Like, for example, middleweight was sort of in a weird spot where you had Michael Bisping be the champion, George St. Pierre wins the title, and then all of a sudden he immediately retires. Well, it's like, well, is whoever has the interim title, is that guy going to be considered the best middleweight in the world or do we consider George St. Pierre the best middleweight in the world and this guy is just number two but happens to be the best one who's still available uh, I, I guess fortunately in that case I don't, I don't think too many people felt as though Robert Whitaker wasn't deserving of the title but it is something that could happen so in this case if Khabib is saying beforehand I'm going to be retiring I'm gone either way then if George St. Pierre is also saying I'm also gone either way then the downside of having George St. Pierre fight is no longer really there because whoever, whoever wins, no matter what, whether it's George St. Pierre or Khabib Nurmagomedov, they're both going to be gone. Um, but then with that being said, the loser of the fight, like if George St. Pierre loses, I guess it kind of sucks for him, um, but it's not as though it really hurts the UFC too bad. If Khabib loses, Khabib's, if Khabib's going to be gone at least, then it's not as though the UFC is like losing any luster on an active member of the roster because Khabib would be gone anyway. So I think that fight definitely makes sense. Uh, I'm sure the UFC would also be looking at the Conor rematch just because of how big the first one was. I would hope of those three options, I'm the least interested in Connor. I'd probably say, uh, gosh, if, if Gaethje loses, I would have to say I'd probably be a little bit more interested in seeing the George St. Pierre matchup than I would the Tony Ferguson matchup, just because I think that style matchup is a little bit more compelling to me than the Tony Ferguson style matchup. Not to say that the Tony Ferguson style matchup isn't compelling to me. It's incredibly compelling to me. But George St. Pierre just offers a bit of a different style to what we see with most. I think most of the guys who could be fights when we say, oh, I want to see him fight a wrestler, the reason why we want to see him fight a wrestler is because we want to see him fight someone who's just going to defend his takedowns. 
Whereas if he's fighting against a guy like George St. Pierre, that would sort of be the first time that Khabib's fighting a guy who actually wants to take Khabib down and beat Khabib the way that Khabib beats other people. And in, in that way, that would be something that's unique and something I would definitely want to see. Um, but either way, before any of this happens, he has to get through Justin Gaethje. Gaethje has a pretty good wrestling background, former D1 All-American. Uh, his striking's improved a lot over time. I don't know how much he's worked on his grappling throughout his MMA career. Don't know what kind of work he's putting in on his jiu-jitsu. Don't know what kind of work he's put into his wrestling, either to maintain the level that he was at in college or to improve on it. And that's going to come to light in, in this fight. If he's been spending all this time working on improving his grappling, um, then I think he's going to be in a pretty good spot. If he just sort of relied on where he was at before he got into MMA and has just primarily wanted to work on his striking since then, that's going to kind of reflect negatively on him. But th there's a lot to be learned in this fight. It's going to be a really fun fight to watch, and that'll be in October. Uh, another really big fight that was announced is Sabit Magomed Sharipov versus Yair Rodriguez. This one will be late August, uh, so later this month. Seems like it would make sense that one of this fight is going to be next in line for a title fight at 145. I know there's some talk right now of Max Holloway getting another rematch. I understand that he lost a split decision that many people thought he lost in that that it, or many people thought he won in that last fight. Uh, but you can't make Alex Volkanovski beat a guy three times in a row if he if he wins the third fight in a row. Then like, what does that really do? If he loses to Max Holloway. Do you say, okay, well, we gave Max Holloway rematches after two straight losses. We at least have to give Alex Volkanovski a rematch after one loss. That would seem fair, but then at that point, you're running the exact same title fight back four times in a row, which makes no sense at all. So I don't think that's going to be the right move to make at featherweight. I think the winner here between Zabit and Yair is going to be a much better choice. Uh, unless you want to put like Brian Ortega or Korean Zombie in there, I think Korean Zombie would make more sense than Brian Ortega for sure. Uh, but either way, this is going to be a really fun fight regardless, given that both of these guys in some ways on the feet have similar styles they both like to throw some wild spinning um really athletic attacks um really interesting kicks that they have uh you would imagine that the beats gonna be a much better grappler here uh, i would imagine that given that the beat trains with mark henry and with frankie edgar that the beat would probably try to take a similar approach to frankie edgar uh where he was able to take yeah down and just control from top beat him up and eventually get a finish i'd imagine that's gonna be the same approach that the beat takes here but either way uh, I would really expect this to be a fun fight, and I expect the winner to be right there in the title picture and, and possibly even earn a title shot next. Uh, another fight that's coming up uh, is one that I mentioned briefly earlier, and that's between Robert Whitaker and Jander Cannonier. Uh, both of these guys arguably had a case for a title fight. Uh, it looks like the UFC is just going to be like, hey, we're just going to make these guys fight each other and let them earn it. Uh, so in the meantime, you'll have Paul Acosta versus Israel Desanya at some point. I don't know if the date has been announced officially yet. Uh, there was an announcement that that was the fight that was coming up, and then Dana White shut it down immediately. I don't think that's Dana White saying that that's not the matchup they're trying to make, but I don't know if they have the date and time uh, set. I don't know if they have the contract set in place either, but it looks as though that's the fight they're trying to make. But I guess in the meantime, that fight will happen. Then we'll have the fight between Whitaker and Cannonier, and then the winner of the Whitaker-Cannonier fight would probably make the most sense for the next title fight. Uh, we also have a heavyweight fight between Alexander Volkov and Walt Harris. So Harris is coming off of the loss to Alistair Overeem. Uh, Volkov, I believe, is also coming off of a loss uh, to Curtis Blades. Uh, so they'll be fighting against each other. Uh, seems like a tough matchup for Walt Harris uh, coming off the loss that he just had. Uh, I figure they'd probably give him something a little bit easier than that, but I guess for him, if he does get a win, then it pushes him right back to where he, where he started before he lost to Alistair Overeem. And then we also have Jeremy Stevens versus Edson Barbosa at 145, which is just going to be an absolute barn burner and pretty much a fight you're gonna have to bet on in fight of the night whenever night it ends up being on um next topic to talk about is going to be a little move in the management world so balance group which i believe is mostly a, an agency for for um baseball players they got into the mma game i believe the name of the manager who was working with a lot of the mma fighters was lloyd pearson or lloyd something 
Um, but he was the manager for Colby Covington. He was the manager for um, Tony Ferguson. And just recently, Balanchy Group, or just recently the, the Lloyd guy got scooped up by Vayner Sports, which is a, a sports agency that's relatively new. Uh, they've got a handful of football players, and they've got some basketball players as well. Um, but they were started by Gary Vaynerchuk and his brother, A.J. Vaynerchuk. And it, it sounds as though, I, I mean, I think for the most part, a lot of sports agencies, it's not just that they're helping negotiate contracts with the league or with the with the promotion. They're also looking at guys' um, other promotional deals as, in terms of ad deals. And so I don't know that Vaynersports is going to do something completely unique compared to what other, some of the other places do, but... I guess at least in terms of how they sell themselves, um, the idea is that they, they take a lot of Gary Vaynerchuk's ideas in terms of how to market and how to promote yourself and really try to apply that to, the, to their players, try to help them from a business standpoint in terms of helping them like make some smart investments for their future. So it'll be interesting to see if that pitch that they've been using that's helped bring in a, a handful of pretty good major league players in, in terms of football, in terms of baseball, uh, and some other sports. It'll be interesting to see if that, that same type of pitch ends up working out in MMA where they're able to draw a lot of guys in. I know that the MMA representation game has been one that a lot of fans have sort of been worried about. I would say that they feel like some of the managers aren't the most reputable. I think over time that's gotten a lot better. Uh, it seems like first-round management, they have a, a pretty decent stable of NFL players, too, at this point, so it seems like they're pretty legit. Uh, with Ali Abdelaziz, it seems like he's mostly just MMA. Uh, I, again, it's sort of weird how he seems to be able to negotiate so well for his guys. I don't know if he has like something on Dana White or if he has like something on some of the top guys in the UFC that he's able to leverage whatever the case may be it seems like he does a good job for his guys but it'll be interesting to see now um, Balanchy would seem to be doing okay pretty recently um, it'll be interesting to see how Lloyd does now under the Vayner Sports umbrella and see if Gary Vaynerchuk somehow gets a little bit more involved with MMA and what kind of results that has but that's going to be something to watch moving forward uh, as far as a couple of prospects to talk about, uh, I believe last week I mentioned that Boucher had announced that he was coming over to MMA. Now he has a deal in MMA that deals with 1FC. Uh, not entirely shocking there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what sort of fights they give him moving forward. I, I never really figured that Boucher was going to be a guy who'd work his way to the UFC and become like a UFC champion, uh, given that he's 30 years old, given that his striking isn't all that great at this point in his career. Uh, it has okay wrestling, but it's, not, it's, it's something that would make him a major threat in the heavyweight division. So for him, it seems to make a lot of sense to make some good money overseas in, in 1FC and not necessarily have to be all that worried about the most stringent drug testing. So it seems like a pretty good move for him. And then for Pat Downey, uh, had that really weird last few weeks with Flow Wrestling where he was supposed to make, I believe it was ten grand to, to wrestle against David Taylor on the Flow Wrestling event on July 25th. Uh, had a bit of a falling out with them uh, based off of a tweet pretty much saying that women in Greco wrestlers um, just don't draw as well as men's freestyle, which is fairly factual, but I guess it pissed a lot of people off, and I guess there might have been some other stuff that was going on behind the scenes as well. But it sounds like he's getting pretty tired of wrestling and pretty tired of the politics that are involved with it. So for him, MMA always seemed like a pretty good fit for him, and now he has a management group at Sucker Punch Entertainment that he just signed with. So it'll be interesting to see where he goes from here, whether or not he wants to try to make another run at the Olympic team in 2021 and then let that be the end of his run in wrestling or whether he wants to just shift his focus to MMA right now. But he has signed with a management group in MMA, so that is worth mentioning. Uh, and then the last topic to talk about is going to be who's number one from Flow Grappling. So this fight, or this match, or this card, I should say, was supposed to be headlined by Gordon Ryan versus Ronaldo Jr. Gordon Ryan gets COVID, um, so Ronaldo Jr. then has to face Wagner Hocha, who's much smaller than Gordon Ryan, but still an excellent grappler. That match was a, a pretty 
pretty aggressive back and forth match, but Wagner was able to get a split decision, split decision win in it. I don't know that we're going to see Wagner Hocha, who was the silver medalist at ADCC at 77 kilograms, going up against Gordon Ryan, who was the gold medalist at 99 kilograms. But I guess that's maybe a possibility that they look to do moving forward. Maybe they still give Hinaldo the match at a later time. Uh, we also were supposed to have Lucas Hulk Barbosa versus Craig Jones. Uh, Craig Jones was a silver medalist at 88 kilograms. Luke, er, and meanwhile, Roberto Cyborg Abreu, who replaced Craig Jones, um, former champion, would always grab what, over 99 kilograms. Um, so that was a match that he had with Lucas Hulk Barbosa. They've had this match before a couple different times. Uh, for Barbosa, first time they went around, Barbosa actually started off pretty strong, got a couple quick takedowns on Cyborg, but sort of ran out of energy at the end, ended up losing on points. Uh, second time around, Cyborg was able to wrestle him from, for the most part, was able to win that match. And this third time around, again, uh, Cyborg being the much bigger guy than Hulk and um, arguably a better wrestler, was able to, to control where this match went and as a result was able to win, win a decision. Uh, we also had a pretty interesting match uh, in the women's division between Elizabeth Clay, who's looked really good. I'm not sure if she's earned her black belt just yet, but she's she looks like a really a really big future star for for women's jiu-jitsu. Um, she was going up against Maggie Grandaddy, who's a black belt and um, girlfriend of Cyborg Abreu, and ended up winning this match by Gogo Pata, which was pretty pretty interesting to see, especially since Elizabeth Clay is a pretty big girl. Um, not quite to the size of Gabby Garcia, but assuming that she makes ADCC uh, in 2021, uh, it's a decent chance that we get a match between Gabby Garcia and Elizabeth Clay. Uh, so that was pretty fun. And then in what ended up being the main event between Gary Tonin and Dante Leon, um, really fun match for the 20 minutes that it went on. Um, but Gary, or I guess it was 15 minutes. Um, uh, but Gary Tonin was able to get the win there. Um, was in control in most positions. Uh, was attacking more than Dante Leon. Dante was able to get the win there. So pretty fun event there in the grappling world. Uh, pretty interesting to see how Gary Tonin has been really successful in grappling uh, over the last year or so. Uh, seems like he hasn't been able to get a whole lot of fights in one FC. And so he's sort of shifted his focus back to grappling in the meantime, uh, at least competitively. And it's had some great results uh, at ADCC. He looked really good. Um, lost to Gordon Ryan in the absolute, which isn't a shocker for everyone who faced Gordon Ryan, lost to him at ADCC. And then in his weight class, um, in the, made it to the semifinals, uh, lost a really close match to JT Torres, who ended up winning the division, and then beat Dante Leon in the third-place match to get a bronze at ADCC in 2019. Uh, and since then, it seems like every match he's had since then, he's gotten a win in uh, whether it's been fight to win or now, whether or now with who's number one, so it's been nice to see him stay active. And it's been nice to see him pick up a lot of wins along the way as well. So next week, obviously, I'll be recapping UFC Apex Four or not Apex Four, Apex Six. Uh, I'll be previewing the fight card that'll be coming up with Steve Miocic and Daniel Cormier. Uh, I believe that's UFC Two Fifty Two, and if any other big events that come up in the grappling world, sometimes they they release the cards pretty later, pr- pretty late on. I'll, I'll be previewing those or recapping those as well. I know that Third Coast Grappling is having a Kumite, so I might be recapping that one uh, next week. So that covers it. Uh, hopefully got plenty of fun stuff to talk about. Hopefully there's some more really big fights. I don't know that it's going to be possible for next week to have bigger fight announcements than we had over the last seven days. Uh, but if there are some big ones, I'll be sure to cover those as well.